All right, we're going to skip a little bit. Uh, we're going to go right on to one of the biggest sections of prayer in the book of Daniel in chapter 9. Um, and so before we unpack uh, chapter 9, uh, I want to jump into basically into the middle of, of chapter 9 and just look at what's the resolution. Uh, verse 23 kind of highlights what the resolution, so I kind of want that in the back of your mind, uh, what the result of the prayer is, even before we get into Daniel's prayer. So, verse 23, uh, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, this is an angel speaking to him, uh, for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to, to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved, therefore consider those word, consider the word, and understand the vision. A word went out. Word went out where? I have it underlined, uh, and that's as far as I got. Okay. I, I assume from God? It would seem so. I mean, it, I don't know where else a word would go out, especially one that instructs uh, Gabriel to uh, go out and engage Daniel. It, it very much implies that in response to this prayer, uh, God is issuing a command angels go right uh, God has spoken back yeah yeah that's kind of cool yeah that so is pretty cool I kind of want that in, in the back of your mind and and uh, as we go through and just unpack some of Daniel's prayer um, and it, it's very cool so uh, verse 2 is going to let us know what the catalyst for Daniel's prayer. Why is he moving to pray, pray like this? Uh, it says, verse 2, In the first year of the reign of Darius, uh, I, Daniel, perceived in the book of Numbers, uh, in the books, the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So what's this catalyst here? What it, why is it that Daniel seems so moved to pray and start off this whole chapter here, this sequence of events of Daniel chapter 9? So he's, he's read Jeremiah, mm-hmm. um, or what, what God has told the prophet Jeremiah, who has then told his people, and it expects that this, uh, this time that Jeremiah has described is nearly up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's, he's praying for... Um, well, it doesn't say exactly is necessarily his. He just knows that it's going to what must pass before it ends, mm-hmm. the seventy years, which he knows. So I don't know. It seems like he's praying for what will what will happen. Mm-hmm. What can we expect after this? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty much what's going on. I, I just kind of wanted to highlight the fact that uh, this prayer, part of the catalyst for it, is Daniel's been reading through Scripture. It's kind of a good catalyst for prayer. I mean, if you find yourself in your quiet time with God and you're like, hey, I'm an introvert, I don't really talk a lot. So bring scripture into your prayer time. Nothing wrong with that. Right. This, this is a good tool. Do it. I'll write uh, that down. <laughs> well, another useful useful thing that's part of this catalyst is uh, not only is he in scripture, but uh, he is now being inspired by uh, the time that Jeremiah had with God. Essentially, Jeremiah had a conversation with God, and as a result of that, and it being written down, um, Daniel picks it up, and he's now having uh, a prayer time with God. So you kind of see some of this influence influence going on. Right. It's not, you know, this unheard of concept of generations praying with other generations, or people in one part of the world end up 
joining in a prayer with another uh, part of the world just through writing and through all kinds of different mediums. So um, the community can pray together even if they aren't in the exact same location. Uh, verse 3. Uh, what are some of the mechanics that Daniel uses in his prayer? Turn my face to the Lord God. Mm-hmm. Does that mean stared up? I pray at the floor like an introvert. Right. Uh, generally, the the Jewish posture that is classically shown is hands up uh, towards heaven and face up towards heaven. Well, it really makes me uncomfortable, Dave. It's very different than than the way that folks in America pray. Um, We're going to get shot doing that. No, okay. <laughs> it doesn't mean that this is what you have to do because keep looking at some of the other mechanics. Okay. Verse three. My prayers, please, for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Yeah. So we've got a face towards heaven. We've got fasting. We've got sackcloth. We've got ashes. There's a lot of different just prayer mechanics going on here. But it well, helps you just to throw highlight. in every potential prayer posturing uh, described anywhere in the Bible and says, I might as well do all this. Yeah. I'm going to be asking for big things. <laughs> if nothing else, it shows the intensity of the prayer. Yeah. With sackcloth and ashes. So explain that. So isn't that traditionally a mourning thing? Like um, uh, Job is, uh, when Job is afflicted the way he is, like he's in sackcloth and he's like rubbing his face with ashes and stuff mm-hmm. and that seems to be the uh, uh, whenever there's a time of, of mourning you, you're wearing sackcloth and uh, and have covered your, your face with ashes right yeah yeah, that's the case it, and yeah his culture tends to be far more dramatic than our culture tends to be in, in terms of things like that but this would be pretty extreme mourning to yeah. be in sackcloth and ashes he's basically wearing burlap and, and sitting in dust and, and dirt and and Something is overtaking him. I mean, he, he's he's concerned about something. You think of how, just from a cultural di- distinction, like think of how awkward it's become for people to do like an Ash Wednesday thing where you got something on your head and you're like, hey, that guy seems devout or something. And th- and uh, uh, in that culture, I mean, they're they're going all for it. Mm-hmm. The guy's got the he's got the burlap on. He's got the ashes covering his face. He's like, I'm mourning, and I. Uh, I will demonstrate it. <laughs> you will know that, I, that there is trouble, and it's, it's actually that that comes a lot. Um, uh, that image shows up a ton mm-hmm. of, uh, especially in in prophecy about mourning in sackcloth and ashes and stuff, and like giving you the posture that that you'd be crying for mercy or mm-hmm. in a state of mourning about the circumstances either that are or that are to come. I find it interesting, uh, just as we're talking about sackcloth and ashes uh, and its connection to humility. Um, you know, when I was in the Middle East and we were doing some translation work on, on uh, like a personality assessment, um, they don't view humility in the same way that we do. Uh, for us, humility is kind of a virtue. That's not the case. Uh, and so, for us to use a, a word like that, a concept like that, it, it very much has a very different social function. For for someone to be in a in a humbled place or even to humble themselves I mean it's something's wrong something's out of whack whereas for us it would seem like they're being very healthy if if they come in with an attitude of humility that seemed like that was not the case as it was explained to me so if you consider that this sackcloth and ashes is in, indicative of someone who is not just out of whack but potentially unhealthy right um, and Daniel is is taking that posture right. in in his prayer. I mean, he, he very much wants God to understand his humility as he's standing before him. 
So, I also find it interesting um, that what Daniel ends up uh, asking God for is something that God's already prayed, or God has already promised. Uh, in verse 16, in particular, you see that Daniel petitioning God, um, and he says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because uh, for our sins and for our iniquities and our fathers in Jerusalem and your people uh, have become a byword among all the people around us. This turning away of the wrath is something that God had already promised to Jeremiah. Right. It, it was already promised. So why is Daniel praying so earnestly for something that he knows God is going to do? That's already been promised to him. Why ask in such earnestness for what you know God's going to do? I think I just popped in my head. It was just, uh, Abraham mm-hmm. saying, or uh, I don't even know. He's going to destroy the city, he says. Okay. I don't know. They go back and forth. Mm-hmm. He argues with him, gets his way. What? <laughs> kind of that, that type of situation. I want. Um, presenter, please, Roger, because you're going uh, I mean, is it, is it possible that he's talking about what will what will follow? Because because um, right, Jeremiah speaks to the seventy kind of that that time frame. Mm-hmm. If he's asking for what will follow, um, is it possible that he's, that he's praying for that that state beyond that? Uh, it's possible, um, but. Most likely, this is during the time period before that 70 years has been resolved. So okay. he's probably not praying about that as much as he's praying for restoration of Jerusalem. And it seems like that that's already promised. Right. Uh, well, the way, there's that Egypt shows up again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, he goes, his prayers is basically a, uh, a recalling of how uh, God is good and his people have stunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Why is he? Why is he praying about something that God has already said was going to happen? Yeah, that's my question. Uh, is it, do you have the right answer? What being God? No, there's a, there's a lot here that I, <laughs> I don't have the right answer okay, to, brilliant. and uh, I don't know why. But I do see that Daniel does it, so I'm thinking maybe I should do that. We don't maybe. deal well with gray, Herrick. Didn't we just talk about this? <laughs> I, I'm sorry. This is one of those gray where I'm just going to have to follow the model that's that's presented and. Maybe I don't understand why he's doing this. Um, I mean, he should know very well that God is going to restore Jerusalem. Um, you know, he's obviously been trusting God with all of his life, so he should know know that God is trustworthy at this point. He knows that it's going to happen, and yet he prays and asks God anyway. So I'm thinking maybe I should be asking God for uh, what I already know that he's going to do anyways. Ask Asking God to glorify Himself among the nations, asking Him to—I uh, don't know—just all those things that we generally assume uh, God's going to take care of. Why don't we just go ahead and ask Him, anyways? Right. I suppose it's—it's it's, um, that's one of the things that degrades our understanding of a prayer life um, in the eyes of uh, whatever your view is on. Um, the functions of his sovereignty to the extent that God's will will ultimately be done um, 
what am I praying for? Mm-hmm. And that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a wrong posture of prayer to begin with. But I suppose this is one of the things that would show me... Um, it, this is very much still a description of who God is, right? Like, I'm reminded of who God is. I'm reminding of what He does simply for asking Him to be Him. In fact, what better prayer could there be? Mm-hmm. If you are the God who, who is God, uh, and I know your ways, and I know your character, um, maybe I, most of my prayers are really, be, you be you. Yeah. Be you, and remind me of who you are in that process. And so if you say, um, if your people will be redeemed, I say, God, let your people be redeemed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is not only, um, it's, it's not as, as, I don't know, benign as a, or banal as a, um, just like a, a repeated affirmation in my mind. It's a reminder of who, who himself is, who God himself is. There's a bit of a praise in that, mm-hmm. that is God be you, uh, and uh, may we delight in those things. And so when he says things like, um, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Mm-hmm. It's an affirmation of that's exactly who God is, and, and we're just in agreement saying, yes, whatever you, what you say is to be done, uh, be done. But but we get to delight in the specificity of it. We get to delight in um, the distinctive things that God has said, as opposed to just passively saying, uh, "Dear Lord, be you love them." Mm-hmm. Um, I get to remind it of who you are in that conversation, um, and 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 you otherwise react in uh, demonstrating that those things are true. Yeah, it, I'd also like to just kind of look at that and. and change the theological perspective a little bit. Um, we've been looking at it kind of from the perspective of how, how God is sovereign and how he's doing his thing and almost kind of relating to him as we might a boss or someone with authority. Yeah. Now let's change the relationship dynamic from uh, someone with authority versus someone who uh, is under that authority. Instead, let's look at it from the perspective of, uh, of a love relationship and uh, someone that you love where God is our lover and we're coming to God saying, hey, God, I like what you have done and what you say you're doing. I want more of it. it. This is very much a love letter saying, hey, I love what you've done. Let's do it. Let's do more of it. Yeah. I want more of you in my life. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it becomes less of a, a black and white um, reality and more of a measure. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, not of, not of, like of, of goodness, but... Um, uh, may more of you be revealed, basically. Mm-hmm. Those things that you've said, uh, may I see them, them permeate mm-hmm. type of thing. And I, I, I suppose um, that is a... Um, th- that's one of those... It's not a gray, it's not really a gray area, but it's something that we're... Um, I, I think our uh, human minds have trouble uh, holding to in tandem is... Um, I know a God that loves me deeply, and I know a God that is that is sovereign. Mm-hmm. And with, with both of those things, I simply can't... I can't uh, comprehend the extreme depths of both of those at the same time. My my mind reasonably struggles with putting those two things together, and so I have to speak about them in such a way that is uh, attempts to comprehend them the best I can. Um, but I, I don't believe that I'm capable of understanding them both and holding them the way that they explain God's character. And so, um, whereas I can be comforted in the fact that God's will will ultimately be done, and I know that he will accomplish that in in whatever means he deems necessary, um, I also have to understand a a God that loves you deeply and then reacts and treats you that way. and, I, and I, I, again, can I can I just accept that both of these are wholly true and delight in that in that truth without having to um, feel like I have to tangibly grasp both? 
and that's uh, that's difficult. I think that's difficult for me um, because I, it is it is easier to tangibly hold on to something. I want to be able to say it is like this. I want to met. Here's what I want is I want a metaphor. I want a metaphor that will tell me so I can say, oh, it's like this. But the truth is, again, if I, if I have if I have metaphors that I feel like have, has captured God's essence um, fully. Um, and I believe that to be the case that I am the fool on the other side of the equation because it, it should be and Revelation will, it like certainly shows us is our language is incapable of properly describing God so we do the best we can yeah. um, and our metaphors are an attempt to capture an understanding of a God that we cannot fully understand and so um, so we have to be able to kind of digest uh, both of those in tandem in a way that says uh, may I be blameless and that I trust that this is accurate <laughs> These both of these things can be true yeah. I think that was to some extent the basis of one of his commands is that the essence of God cannot be captured by any kind of image or iconography there is no perfect metaphor for who God is right. it's something you just have to experience yeah and even then you're still getting it in very limited ways yeah um, uh, verse 19 uh, Daniel is trying to motivate God what does Daniel use as the basis of motivating God how does he appeal to God? So this is this is something that I've you've seen a number of the prophets do is basically protect your name. Mm-hmm. Don't let your name be slandered here. May people look at your uh, folks who do not follow you will look at your people and say, "What kind of God is that?" Look at the state those people are in. Um, defend your name. Yeah, it's bold. Yeah, he ultimately appeals to God based on God's own reputation. Um, throughout the whole uh, section up here, prior to the angel showing up, uh, you've got 19 verses of Daniel just praying, and you see a lot of Daniel approaching God, um, confessing, confessing sins, his own people, asking for forgiveness. And to some extent, he he's almost posturing as a high priest would. And I think that that's very interesting since it's during the time period in which the temple's destroyed. There really isn't kind of a high priest and, and sacrificial system going on. So this is probably the best picture of the high priest of the Jewish community at this point in time. Um, at the very least, in terms of the exiled populace. Um, but a lot of what he's doing here is... is some of those high priestly roles. Yeah. Um, and I like how he's, just the way that he talks about and, and confesses, not just his sins, but it, it almost like he's taking a responsibility for the sins of his entire people, of his nation. There, there's a certain ownership that, that he has going on, and, and he's approaching God, and to some extent, uh, accounting for, at least. Yeah. And saying, hey, that, you know, this is not just on their head, but it's also on my head. Um, because I'm a part of this community, and he's appealing to uh, to God's forgiveness, um, hoping for, ultimately hoping for uh, resolution from God, um, you know, not from himself, certainly not from his people's craftiness or anything like that. His hope is very firmly rooted in God, all throughout this. But it, it's just very interesting. It, you see a lot of this confession language, uh, both personal and communal. And it's, it's interesting, um, based upon his description um, from being taken from the lion's den, mm-hmm. right? Like if we were to look at, uh, using that word as Daniel was blameless, and then uh, you write that whole prayer is full of, um, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wicked, wickedly, we have not listened to your servants and prophets. Um, 
there's just all kinds of, of we's and we have sinned against you. We've rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws. He's, you're right. He's very much taken that posture of speaking on behalf of, of the people mm-hmm. um, in a very high priestly way, um, even though our description or understanding of him uh, is, is a man blameless, mm-hmm. blameless before God. Yeah. Which kind of makes me wonder, as leaders of a community, do we do that? Or even leaders of a family? Is that something that we do? I don't know. Just something to think about. Help it to maybe shape our... Gesson's feeling very judged at this moment yes. for his lack of <laughs> communal prayer. I agree. <laughs> he should feel judged. <laughs> he has the biggest family here. So. <laughs> Way to go, Gesson. All right. Uh, moving on to chapter 10. Uh, this is cool because Jesus shows up in the... And, yeah, I, I love it when... Well, actually, it's all over the book of Daniel, but, you know... Uh, so verse 2 um, there's mourning and there's weeping going on here uh, it says in those days I Daniel was mourning for three weeks in what ways is mourning an important way to connect with God so uh, healthy mourning in a healthy way mm-hmm. is um, part of a preparation for a new reality right like something has been lost something is um, uh, something has happened, and you are uh, not only you know reflecting on on whatever it is that has gotten you there, but you're also preparing for the reality that that is now what will be true after that point. Mm-hmm. And so, I suppose in 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 mourning as part of interacting with God, um, it puts God in the rightful place. That says the re- something about this reality has changed, mm-hmm. um, and I how. Uh, how should I see that rightly? How do I see uh, who God is in this? How do I understand um, myself in light of those circumstances? What does the future hold? Well, how should I? How should I go? Um, where do I trust? Those types of things. It's um, in any circumstance in which I'm preparing. Um, the, it's the process in which I prepare for a new reality. Um, God is certainly part of that if I'm doing it in a healthy way. And so mourning would, would seem to actually be a natural fit um, for how we interact with God. It is a healthy thing to interact with Him in that way. Yeah. Uh, let's bring into that discussion about mourning just the way that uh, Jesus mourned. Uh, so what are some times in which Jesus mourned? And when is it necessary for followers of Jesus to mourn? So let's start off highlighting the places. When did Jesus mourn in Scripture? When do you find him weeping? Uh, death of Lazarus. Mm-hmm. Um, outside, um, uh, over Jerusalem, um, just prior to his prior to his death. Mm-hmm. Um, it, which is interesting in the context of a new reality coming on the stage. Right. Right. Yeah. Before he was arrested, was he in the garden? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, in the garden. So you've got folks like Jesus, you've got Daniel, you've got Jeremiah, who's known for weeping. Um, it seems like some of these really significant heavy hitters in Scripture are known at times to uh, to be moved to weeping and to mourning. Um, is that a ministry service? I mean, is that an important part of our ministry? Is it something that's necessary for followers of Jesus to mourn at times? I would say so. I wonder if... Um, maybe this is maybe just... Uh 
porn out my business uh, but I'm just thinking of my own life stop recording um, it just is my own life that's do I do I look at mourning incorrectly mm-hmm. do I um, do I feel like mourning is a lack of as a lack of faith, mm-hmm. right? Um, why would I be weepy about this? Is it not God's will? Does, it, does he not have this under control? Why are you mourning? It, it would almost seem like Jesus did it in times when God was most sovereign. Like, you know, he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And yeah. He's about to, you know, be brought into Jerusalem to be executed and, yeah. and then to be raised from the dead. And he's mourning over the city of Jerusalem. And it, it seems almost in the context of God's sovereignty that some of that mourning pops up. Yeah, and so it's probably just a wrong. Um, maybe it's a Western thing. Like it's a sign of uh, mourning is a sign of weakness, as a sign of uh, lack of trust. Mm-hmm. When, um, when when the examples you gave um, simply wouldn't wouldn't seem to describe it that way. Mm-hmm. Like Jesus weeping over the death of Lazarus simply isn't. Well, he d- doesn't he trust himself <laughs> to raise Lazarus? You know, like that isn't. Um, it's certainly a reflection of reality. Can I um, can I trust that God is still God? Um, and still mourn the fact um, of unnecessary um, of poverty, unnecessary death, unnecessary broken unnecessary, but like broken relationships. Like, are these things still worth? I can still mourn over those things and preparing for reality in which they those things are broken, and now we have to react differently to times before they were broken, mm-hmm. um, and and not have to otherwise. Um, be cast with the thought that God is not God or that he is not sovereign he is still those things um, mourning still seems still seems appropriate there mm-hmm. and even even Job's posturing right like if you look back at back at Job like he's, he's outrageous with his reactions from our, from our perspective right with the types of things that he's doing and he's um, he's still trusting in God in God there and so it's um yeah, maybe, maybe just don't we just don't understand mourning well, mm-hmm. um, and it, it's culturally uh, is a sign of, of weakness when when actually it would be a sign of spiritual strength in mm-hmm. saying I'm preparing for your whatever reality follows this. Mm-hmm. Um, God be God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was gonna think of the definition that you gave prior. That would be it would be a moment of reflection, um, possibly assessment. And then that would lead to transformation. Yeah. So, I guess, yeah, like, sounds like a good process. Yeah. So, a healthy so process. To answer your question, I suppose this is what Josh has done. Like, it's a yeah. Does it sound like a ministry service? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sounds right. Good. Yeah. Um, I, I was inspired by, uh, there was a, a lady that I worked with uh, as we were entering into Iraq. Um, we had trained together for a month and then went to the field but uh, we went to separate cities and hadn't uh, hadn't been in contact for about uh, a month to six weeks or so uh, got to back together at one point and uh, you know everyone on on the other team uh, was meeting up with it was it was kind of a cool little reunion there for us and uh, her story was just very unique just because uh, you know, I asked her how things were going, and she says, "I every day uh, I'm just crying. It's like all day long. I'm just moved to tears, and it, it sounds she's just overwhelmed by it. And, and she's not one who's really, from what I saw, you know, a real big crier or anything. She just says she looks out at the people and you know, just the normal comings and goings of life uh, that's there on the street, and just realizing." Uh, just seeing them kind of from God's reality and just weeping over the people and, and realizing how how deeply God loves these people it, it just 
it, it broke her and, and she just every day would just weep for these people and just weep because you know it, God is expressing the same sort of thing towards these people that he loves so very much why would it be unnatural for us who are also moved by the heart of God to do the same sort of thing yeah. so at, at least somewhere within the body of Christ uh, there was someone who was who was expressing God's uh, passion for these people through mourning so yeah um, not to dwell on that a little, too much but uh, let's jump on to verse 7 and 8 you see um, Daniel just he sees this vision and he falls to his feet, feet trembling uh, what is it about God that terrifies you I mean, he's having this close encounter with someone who is certainly from God, um, and he's afraid. What is it about God that terrifies you? In uh, verse eighty, Daniel says, "My radiance, er, um, my radiant appearance, appearance was fearfully changed. I retained no strength." Yeah, I, I would say to. Um, being laid bare mm-hmm. I have no um, in the presence of God um, I am I am who I am mm-hmm. whereas um, in any other relationship I can try to control to a certain extent who I am yeah. <laughs> and how people know me and so the fear is probably a combination of um one, I suppose, interacting with the, mm-hmm. with the living God will do that to a man. But uh, part of that interaction is is just the stark reality of being of being laid bare and of being at your most vulnerable and being at um, where you you in in the light of who you're dealing with, you have no power. You have no, that's why like, like the strength part. Right? I retain no strength. Yes, I have nothing to say for myself. I have nothing to do of myself. I have no demonstration of who I am. I am simply who I am mm-hmm. in the presence of God. Um, and it, uh, being laid bare, I feel like scares the crap out of me. Uh, I tell you, it, that make, that reminds me of one of the coolest verses in uh, in the Old Testament, uh, and it's before the fall. It describes Adam and Eve when they were in the garden, and it says. Uh, uh, they were they were naked and right. it had no shame. Right, no shame. Yeah, that, that that is not so as shallow as they're nude and it's not a problem, right? Like it's probably a deeper reality that says they they simply are not concerned about being laid bare before God. They are laid bare before God. Right, and uh, and no shame and no shame. Yeah, there's something very childlike and awesome about that. That yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Hmm. Anything terrify you about? God. Along the lines of what Ben said, yeah, that there's no hiding, mm-hmm. that there's no everything's open. And, it, and it's not that it's not that um, uh, it's not that I would want to hide, right? Like that's right. not the thought. It's just that um, I never have to deal with the full extent of my reality, you right? Never have to look at that straight, like. I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I would, I, I certainly want to be in the presence of God. Um, I, I wouldn't flee from that. I certainly welcome the, opportunity, the thought of being laid bare before God. But it is, it is a fearful thing because the the weight of my, uh, the weight of all the balls that I that may be up in the air at any given time that represent who I am or who I'm attempting to be, um, 
are, are basically like my bluff is called and there am I just like sitting there and it's it's that seems both terrifying and extremely freeing um, in, in both circumstances which feels like a weird feeling that I uh, potentially can't describe accurately <laughs> yeah. yeah I don't know you just think about like with Daniel and like even in Revelation when John is in the presence in his yeah. presence and he falls down on his knees and even just with like anybody in the presence has to like turn away can't look on their knees yeah in fear uh, they can take you back to like Indiana Jones thing where we're all just <laughs> turned to ashes or something yeah right but, but like this all powerful almighty like I mean, like you just don't know what what there is what what it is right is. and there's no like, circumstance in which it can be likened to like right. there's no earthly circumstance where I can be oh yeah it's kind of like that like that yeah. this seems to be the one where you've not even attempted to come up with a metaphor but 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 also in in all those circumstances like what's always God's reaction or his messenger's reaction is, is do not be afraid mm-hmm. it's like the thing that you fear most um, I'm not here to, to cause fear into you I'm like it's, 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 it's that love thing right sovereign love big God loves you what do I do with that? Put him, shake him up in a bucket, and mourn for three weeks. <laughs> Those are my <laughs> options. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's take a look at uh, verse two and verse twelve, specifically about timing. Uh, in verse two, it says, "In those days, I Daniel was mourning for three weeks." Uh, then verse twelve, uh, then he, the person who stands before him, uh, said to him, "Fear not, Daniel, for." From the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Huh. From the first day. But Daniel was in mourning for three weeks. Uh, is it following 13? The prince of kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Right. Okay, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a an explanation as to why it went on for three weeks, but the guy was sent out... Uh, three weeks ago and he only just now was able to get to him it it gives me this sense that the spiritual world might be a little more complicated than I think I mean a lot of times my prayers have kind of this simplicity as though God is I mean God is sovereign but I almost deal with the spiritual realm as though it's just a simple matter of God does a thing and then it happens right or sends out a word and then boom whereas even the natural world around me you've got a lot of people around here who are living in a state of disobedience to god not including myself among them and it just paints a very complicated picture of maybe what the spiritual world is in addition to the natural world it you know, right. It might not be quite so simple as a turnkey solution <laughs> response to our prayer. No, that's true. We're always like send star, shake tree, yeah, to turn to night so that I may know you are sovereign, <laughs> right? As opposed to, uh, yeah, right, right. It would not occur that there's a there's a some sort of temporal physical reality to a man bringing a message from God who's detained by some sort of other force going on. Yeah. Um, Seems like some sort of airline baggage mix-up when really it's like the word from the Lord is on its way and I'm just tapping my foot. Mm-hmm. If you were God, I would know this by now type of thing. Oh, I'm a humble myself before the Lord. Jeez. <laughs> Fortunately, the world doesn't revolve around us and our timing. So maybe a little bit of humility with the way that we pray 
might be in order and just realize, hey, maybe he has answered us and the answer is just still coming. Yeah, and think of what our, um, think what, what uh, in, especially in this circumstance, what those answers bear. They bear the weight of a... Of a, uh, a decree a, from God. Yeah, yeah, and, and like, of which it is uh, of, of an opposite, of an antagonist's best interest to delay such a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, to keep that word of God from reaching where it's supposed to reach. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, I suppose, also kind of re, uh, reaffirms a, a spiritual reality which we would generally check a box for, but otherwise not put any stock in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, I, and maybe that goes back to, the, to, to Daniel saying, I, I trust, um, I trust it's, I trust God, right? Like I'm not blameless. I'll be blameless here. Um, uh, he's He's heard my prayer. I, I trust that. He has answered. I trust that. <laughs> to the extent that I know it, whenever it is that I know it, I trust that. Let's see what God does. Um, that's difficult. Yeah. So, going on to, uh, I, I was inspired by verse 15, where uh, uh, Daniel. Here's this report from the uh, from the celestial messenger. Um, I, I personally think it was very much Jesus, but um, at the very least, it's someone from heaven who can speak on behalf of God, um, who is now standing before Daniel. And so, uh, verse 15: uh, When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and was mute. And it kind of got me thinking. Um, so here he is, face to face with who I presume is Jesus, but at the very least um, emissary from heaven. Um, Daniel's not doing a lot of talking. Right. Is that characteristic of your prayer time too? Who does most of the talking? Yes, man. I do most of the talking. <laughs> <laughs> believe that or not. <laughs> I can believe it. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know how to shut up. Frankly, <laughs> dear Lord, I've allocated time to blabber you for a bit. Yeah. Please, please hold your tongue while I speak. It would seem that there's some wisdom in shutting up while right. standing in the presence of God, right? And just maybe just listen. Maybe He does have some wisdom that He wants to impart. I don't know. So, that, that was something that really spoke to me. So, um, continuing on, uh, verse nineteen. Uh, you, You have a repetition here going on. O man greatly loved, fear not. This is the second time that that Daniel is is called O man greatly loved. Um, Look at what happened just before that. mm -hmm. Uh, Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. Yeah, exactly what Jesus does to John in Revelation. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why... Why I was looking through this and thinking this is very much Jesus' mo going on right here. Yeah, especially in light of of uh, both of their reactions to initial uh, initially encountering Jesus mm-hmm. or the or the emissary uh, losing strength and then uh, falling to the ground, falling yeah. to the ground, and then and then God provides the strength and say, uh, yeah. I, I get where you're at. You've been laid bare. It happens. Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me strengthen you up, and then let's carry on with what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. So I find it interesting that in addition to the the fear not, which I mean you get that a lot when when people have encounters with emissaries from heaven, but he addresses him as man greatly loved. He doesn't call him Daniel. He doesn't. It, it's almost like this is how he's known. It's like this is a a title or or I don't know what what the term is a, a cute name, but it, it's the name it would seem that God has for Daniel is. His identity is, you are a man who is greatly loved. Right. 
this is how you are known. This, this is your identity. God has just given this guy his identity, and he's repeated it twice just in case he missed it the first time. Which is also how John describes himself, the one who, the one who, who Jesus, who loves. Jesus yeah. loves. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, there's definitely some common identity going on there, but yeah. it's cool that God is giving him a very comforting and very personal identity right there. Yeah. Um, and kind of makes me ask, what name does God have for you? What, what identity has he given to you? Um, and, and it's a very personal thing, but it's certainly something to, to seek out in your prayer time is just, God, how am I known to you? Um, what identity do you have for me? There, there's something very, very telling in the identity that he may have for you. He calls me a man who refuses to mourn, blabbers during the prayer time, and has no concept of realistic spiritual realities. I believe that's how you would call yourself. <laughs> Perhaps but God is more gracious to me. <laughs> I am absolutely certain God is more gracious, but I think God is also more insightful towards you. That's true. He could probably shorten that out, too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He's a, he knows words. <laughs> yeah, he's also far more pithy. <laughs> All right. Um, let's see about wrapping up some of this. Uh, okay, in... Chapter 10, verses 20, uh, basically to the end of the chapter, and including uh, 11, ch- chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, you see Jesus uh, has personally brought Darius to power. He has deposed the Persians. He has ushered in the Greeks to power. Jesus literally shapes the course of nations. Uh, check out one of the, his titles in Revelation chapter 2, where he's referred to as the ruler of the kings of the earth. So just... But we have a rhetorical question here. Do you really understand the power of this person that you pray to? No. Next. <laughs> no, I do not. I, uh, I, I, may, uh, I may agree to that. Um, does that contemplation reflect in some of the ways that I act or pray? Uh, no. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, wrapping it up with uh, chapter 12. Uh, chapter 12, verse 1. It says, at that, time, uh, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is in charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since uh, there was a nation, uh, since there was a nation at that time. But at that time your people will be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Okay. What book? So he talked about uh, the book of truth back in 10, mm-hmm. but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. Yep. So is there some kind of big mysterious book somewhere out there in the heavenly realms that has a record of everything going on? Uh, no, no, I think that is a, a metaphorical description of Jesus saying, this is how it is, mm-hmm. uh, and this is how... Um, has there ever been since there was a nation? But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name, uh, uh, I know everyone's name uh, and to how things are. Mm-hmm. That's, how, that's how I would. Kind of a, almost a predestination-ish type of talk. It's, it's got a whiff of it. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and then verse 6. Uh, you see some curiosities going on there. It says, And someone uh, said to the man clothed in linen, uh, the one who is above the waters of the streams, how long will it be till the end of these wonders? Um, instead of 
divulging into the answers and the context around that because a lot of people have gotten into that and and whatnot. I, I really want to just get back to prayer in general and just uh, the guy's bringing a curiosity and is looking for some kind of insight from God. So what curiosities do you bring, do you inquire of God when you pray? What are some of those mysteries that you're just asking for, hey God, can you tell me more about this? Very few, because I am, I am afraid that it will make me feel faithless. I'm afraid at times to ask God big questions mm-hmm. because it feels like I don't, it feels like a lack of faith to a certain extent. That seems wrong, uh, but it, it seems like that. I think at times that is my that is my reality because I don't know how to react to the fact of asking a uh, a wonderment question without the expectation of an answer, um, or if I expect that there's an answer and then don't get what I expect. Um, potential so like uh, there's a there's a lack of faith in there somewhere but uh, I would say probably probably very uh, very very few mm-hmm. uh, times will I will I ask kind of those wonderment questions of God I almost feel like kids handle this in a much healthier way I mean they'll just blurt out whatever question they've got on their mind they seem to be wondered and and marveled by anything whereas adults seem to somehow lose our sense of wonder and yeah and it seems like one of those things that um, just should be an essential part of our relationship with God is is just taking and, and being in awe of, of I mean yeah God certainly and also the things that God does yeah why not be inspired and marvel at these things and wonder and just be captivated by a sense of awe of him and what he's done no, that's that's true. It's, uh, in fact, it fits with uh, along the thought process that says uh, I can't possibly hope to contain my understanding of who God is. And so, can I look out and uh, when the next science breakthrough shows up and they're like, "Hey, we feel like there's an amoeba somewhere in the in the you know the Mupar galaxy," I'll be like, "Lord, what have you done on the Mupar galaxy? Sounds awesome. <laughs> Let me, help me to know. You know, yeah. like like I, I I wonder what I wonder." All of what you've created, yeah, and and can I be left in the wonder that my God does that, and He's not limited to what I can conceive of or what fits into my paradigm, mm-hmm. um, and that is not a that is not a faithless act. That is a faithful act that says you do wonderful things. Mm-hmm. I wonder what they are. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it helps us to live in the gray uh, when we can have that and uh, feel no shame yeah. in that state of just being in awe of hey. He's got something going on. I, I'm curious about that. I can't, I can't package it up. Maybe I can't digest it. I, I don't completely understand it, and and that's okay. Yeah. But I'm inspired by it still. Yeah. So those are some of the just lessons that I found as as I was going through uh, Daniel just this first time looking for just in awe of the way that he prays some of the things that I learned uh, from him even some of these pagan guys and just the way that they pray I just um, I hope you guys have got some level of inspiration maybe this will change the way you pray a little bit maybe the way that you interact with God I don't know but um, it's very cool and it seemed to be very central to Daniel's life and it might very well be a defining characteristic of who he is Um, but Certainly something I'd, I'd love to do more of in my life. So, uh, 